Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Wilander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Hello folks and welcome one last time this fortnight to the Tennis Podcast and Wimbledon Relived on what would have been men's finals day of the 2020 Championships and finally the sun is out. It's been a frankly miserable what would have been Wimbledon fortnight which has made the the pain of of missing out on Wimbledon slightly easier to bear certainly for me personally but it's a, it's a lovely summer's day today. And it would be a nice day to be enjoying the men's final, especially as the um, the flying ants haven't got the memo that Wimbledon didn't happen. Uh, they are out in force Isn't today, they? which is uh, a Wimbledon tradition. Oh, I hadn't noticed that. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> um, yeah, today's the first day that I've I've properly missed it, and I I think maybe the weather is part of that. Um, and we've we've just watched a match with an amazing atmosphere, which I think probably also stirs that feeling a little bit. And probably because it's the last day of what would have been Wimbledon, and for us is the last day of Wimbledon relived for now. <laughs> <laughs> What a pointed addendum to that sentence, David. Yeah. Oh, it's, <laughs> when you've it's got, very when pointed. have you got your next one planned for well, us? When should we brace ourselves? There's a, there's a list developing there's, on my computer. There's a certain uh, Olympic week looming on the horizon, isn't yeah. there? I, I, even I feel like I do actually need a week off now. <laughs> I feel like doing a relived of all of the sports at the, the Olympics. <laughs> we'll be doing archery relived <laughs> from... <laughs> Beijing 2008 or something. She could do this, folks. I'm telling you. (laughs) She just ain't doing it on this feed. Go and start the archery podcast. Matt, how are you doing? The end is near. You can have a sleep soon. (laughs) Yes. Well, I'm going to hold David to... uh... Even I want a week off now. That, that is that is not quite in writing, but it's been said and we need to honour that. You know it doesn't apply to middle of the night WhatsApps, though. <laughs> no. There's a moratorium on, on that. Yeah. Um, today, folks, we take you to the year 2015 um, and a third round match between eventual champion Serena Williams and then British number one Heather Watson, a match which ended up defining that Wimbledon 
for Serena in in some ways defining the extraordinary and dramatic year that she had on tour in 2015 and a match that kind of defines Wimbledon in some ways or certainly encapsulates Wimbledon the the sun setting over a just resplendent center court with British tennis tennis fans out in force getting behind a plucky Brit that half of them had never heard of that morning. <laughs> it's um, it's Wimbledon all over, isn't it? And I think, I don't want to put words in your mouth, David, that, but that's probably what made you miss it because what we've just watched so sums up so many of the things that we love about tennis. Yeah, I would say that's true. I, I also think it's it really does encapsulate the the Wimbledon that I knew as a kid and as a teenager before Tim Henman came along when British you know there there was a a a big gap where I had not known British contenders for the title um in on the women's side in before my time there'd been Ann Jones and Virginia Wade and Sue Barker had won the French Open but would never really perform to that level at Wimbledon um so Throughout my formative years of following the sport, Jeremy Bates had a good run in 92, got to the second week, had match points, didn't manage to take them against Guy Forget. Um, And there were a lot of those sort of moments. There were a lot of single standout moments of a player that would make them national news, back page, front page news even. Players like Andrew Castle, who got to 80 in the world, but had a match against Mats Valander that back then was hyping him to to a level that even he didn't think was was appropriate. I remember in, in the post-match press conference that uh, that he did, he, he, he gave this great line after losing the final set against Valander. He was two sets to one up. Valander was world number one, 1986. He says, he said, let's just take it easy here. I mean, I lost. And... <laughs> You know that's that says a lot, really. I think you know he he was realistic enough to know. And I remember Chris Bailey in 1993 playing Goran Ivanisevic, and the whole nation just stopped. It was nine seven in the fifth set, twenty to nine at night. The whole nation stopping for about four hours just to watch this moment, and and he became a national celebrity in a single day. People had, I mean. It's way more than what Heather Watson experienced here in terms of going from somebody nobody had ever heard of. I mean, Watson was on the, the map to some degree. This took her to another level, no question. But Bailey was an, an, a complete unknown. And then suddenly, I remember him going on BBC Grandstand the next day with uh, Des Lynham, the, the presenter, who who's asking him about his life and said, what does your girlfriend think of all this? And he said, I haven't got a girlfriend. I haven't got a girlfriend. And then suddenly the BBC were just inundated with with letters from people offering their services as his girlfriend. Um, services. Okay. Oh. <laughs> okay. Send, send, what sort of <laughs> sending their numbers? <laughs> okay, maybe that wasn't quite the right choice of words. Um, but he told me he told me because he covered um, the Australian Open with us for BBC Radio for for a number of years and. He told me that that night he went into Wimbledon Village and walked into a restaurant with a friend of his and the entire pub and restaurant just stopped what it was doing and turned around and just stared at him. And 
you know, he'd never experienced anything like like that at all until, you know, four hours before he'd never been heard of by so many people. Um, so this was the first of these kind of matches that I think we'd had for a long while because people had got used to Tim Henman being a contender in the second week of of Grand Slams. And then, of course, Andy Murray had come along and, and taken it to an even greater level. So, you know, you, d- you don't really know what it was like, you two, to... <laughs> to be in this situation of of kind of having a British player to support when there are no British players to support. Hang on, I lived through the Henman years. I suffered through the agonies. Yeah, but you didn't experience the pre-Henman years, is my point. I do remember watching the very vaguely the Jeremy Bates-Guy Forget match because we had a, a French au pair at the time. And it was, you know, it was billed as a... England v France in the Whitaker household. Um, I remember not being into it at all, possibly slept through it, but I remember that being an event. So, you know, I, I've I've suffered, done but my time. I'd got schoolmates who were just bunking off the, the afternoon to go and watch Jeremy Bates. Uh, to watch Jeremy match. Bates. Yeah. Um, so, what's that noise? <laughs> That's Magnus. <laughs> Hang on. It's Magnus, this is Magnus the dog, everybody. I think Magnus is trying to tell his story of uh, experience of Jeremy Bates. <laughs> Catherine has literally left the room to yeah. deal with whatever Magnus has so, seen or heard or something. My favourite bit about this is that just behind Catherine in this particular picture uh, is a cushion with a picture of a bear who looks like the bear is now on the podcast. <laughs> Is that Catherine's cushion from the Winter Olympics? I really don't know, Matt. Um, I'll have to ask her when she comes back. I'm starting to forget who Catherine is. Um, (laughs) (laughs) She's still not there, really. Uh, So I I remember those days very vividly. um, And Tim Henman coming along changed the whole landscape. What was Henmania like? (laughs) (laughs) Have we got time to do that? (laughs) great questions uh, Matt uh, has just asked Catherine as yep. Catherine cradles Magnus the <laughs> borrowed dog on her lap um, Matt has just asked what was Henmania like intense <laughs> um, and and fabulously British mm. yeah um, there was a there was a sort of slight reluctance about all of it um you know that sort of even about the way henman approached it wasn't there there was this he he really tried to embrace it but there's always a slight look of his on his face of this isn't me (laughs) if 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 a look of i'm not the guy that has a mania named after me (laughs) i mean what I've just described with regard to, say, Chris Bailey and Andrew Castle and what we've seen today with Heather Watson in terms of suddenly becoming the sole focus of a nation for a few hours, that's, that's I mean, okay, the majority of the nation, people who don't normally care about tennis are switching on and watching these moments. When Henman came along, he'd also got 
results to back that up in terms of other grand slams that he'd been to i remember his 96 wimbledon i was in the crowd when he beat yevgeny kafelnikov in the first round and kafelnikov was the french open champion at that time five set classic put him on the map for people like this but then he backed it up and went through to the second week and it was the difference between feeling like you'd got a player to support for a day and a player to support for a tournament he he was a contender and it really felt like he might be able to one day reach the final of Wimbledon and, and win the title. You know, when when he played Pete Sampras, we were watching recently the uh, the match that <laughs> Catherine's just in and out of the picture at the moment while she tends to Magnus the dog. Uh, hello, Catherine. Welcome back. Um, did, did, did you carry on right throughout? Yep. My, yeah, we're, right, we're okay. still going, Catherine. You know, <laughs> how, the, how much have I missed? The show must go on, is what I say. Um, I'm editing today, and I just want a free, clean record. <laughs> yeah. So we're just carrying on. <laughs> right, regardless of okay quality, right. whether you're there or not, we're just going ahead. Yeah, it's the last day, folks. You know, the last day of school, you just let everything, anything goes, doesn't it? You kind of, you know, it's wear what you want day. You can play games, studies gone. So that's what mm. this edition of the tennis podcast is all about, folks. So Magnus got the memo. Yeah, um, the final that Henman played at Queen's against Sampras when he very nearly beat Sampras uh, Sampras at the end of it says I, I was so impressed with Henman today and I really think one of these days he's going to win Wimbledon and that's how it felt now I know he was being really f- magnanimous and really you know, he, was, he was being trying to be classy you might say in that moment but he was knocking on the door Henman for a number of years he got to the semis in 98 he took the first set, same in 99, both against Sampras. Suddenly you get to 2001, Sampras loses, and he- this is Henman's chance, and we know what happened, three-day semi-final. So it was a massive deal, really, that, and, it, and it was year on year. The nation would just prepare for this run. I have no idea what it would have been like to be in his skin. I mean, I, I think he said he just tried to avoid newspapers and avoid media coverage because it was absolutely enormous Mm. i've always just struggled to get my head around whether people thought of tim henman as a genuine contender or someone who was overperforming at wimbledon and would kind of inevitably get close but not win it feels like that's kind of the narrative of it these days like looking back on it people people think that maybe you know they kind of think of him as not achieving which is whereas, ha- so unfair which is, which is harsh and unfair it's appalling really given that he got to number four in the world and he reached Absolutely. semi-finals of the u.s open and the french open he won paris got to the atb finals so it's interesting you hearing saying that that at the time it didn't feel like that it felt like this guy was a genuine contender making the best of his game and could win wimbledon but ran ran up against Sampras in two semi-finals was an outside genuine contender at a at a handful of Wimbledon's. I would say. Um, I, I remember, you know, when I first started working in tennis, late noughties, sort of two thousand eight nine. It was the very end of uh, Tim Henman's career, um, and you know, when I would tell people I worked in tennis, reflexively, so often. The, the first thing I would hear from somebody, inevitably, you know, not a, a big tennis fan would be, oh, 
he had to spend a lot of time watching Henman lose then, you know, that would be the reflexive quip, something sniffy about Tim Henman being a loser. And I would humorlessly get really irritated by it and spend an awful lot of time defending him really and being being quite snobby about the fact that that was that was a position only held by people that just didn't understand and didn't get it and um I can't be asked now cuz people are just idiots aren't they but yeah for for a long time there were a lot of you know casual tennis fans that indulged in that narrative of Tim Henman, the British nearly man that never quite had it in him, just never had what it took. Um, and it was lazy and and not not appropriate. Not I, appropriate I think really. it's almost the definition of building up to knock down the, the Tim Henman story of progress at Wimbledon, excitement, hype, and then he loses a match, mostly when he's up against somebody who's just just a bit better than he is really there isn't any more, I mean there were a couple of losses I'm sure he he feels he could have won but Sampras Hewitt you know all his semi-finals were lost to the eventual champion mm. yeah mm. and and what what the what the sneery passing tennis fans the, that only were aware of Tim Henman at, at Wimbledon don't know is that probably the Grand Slam he came closest to winning was the 2004 French Open. Um, but I think anyway, no, I mean, I setting, a, setting a break up on Correa to face Gaudio in the final. That's the one that got away. Um, but anyway, well, we took a, we, while I was on... Um, left the ship unmanned you took a Sorry. you tried you took Matt back to the 90s David while I was while I left you unattended we even had a few minutes in the 80s it was awesome wasn't it Matt <laughs> um, so I'm going to steer us back to the well there's not a word for them is there the tens the teenies all those words are awful um, well in 2015 what was happening uh zane malik left one direction big <laughs> event um who's that the apple watch went on sale uh, <laughs> we've already done a 2015 match which is why i'm not hitting you with the really um epic uh, memorable events that happened in the, this year we're, we're scraping the barrel a little bit um cecil the lion outrage anyone remember that it was a big deal at the time princess charlotte was born we had george being born yesterday didn't we well charlotte was born in 2015 uh the fifa scandal um when i read that I th my in my mental response was which one um <laughs> And it was Back to the Future Day, October 21st, 2015. And the future is now the past. And for anybody who doesn't understand that reference, 1985 was when Back to the Future came out. I went, I saw it at the cinema. And uh, yes, they programmed into the DeLorean the coordinates of 2015 as the future point to go to. And it was a rather different future that they went to than what turned out to be. Fly, yeah. Cars don't apparently fly, which is a bit of a blow. Yeah. Hover, uh, hoverboards are, I believe, a thing. They're just not nearly as cool a thing as they looked in uh, in Back to the Future, sadly. Right. 
But anyway, we digress. Uh, what were you doing on this day in 2015, Matt? Because you're a fully formed human adult at this stage. Yes, I've met you too. Mm. And I've just had my first experience of a tennis tournament with a lanyard at Queen's. So suddenly I'm back in the queue at Wimbledon and probably a little bit grumpy about that. You know, the power of the lanyard is a is a very real thing. Um, <laughs> but no, it, it, this was I was at Wimbledon on this day with my sister for her first ever trip to Wimbledon. And we had queued from early in the morning just to get grounds passes. Um, and I was tasked with the responsibility of you know, kind of showing my sister around and making sure that we saw what she wanted to see because it was her first trip. And what did she want to see? She wanted to see names, which was how she put it. She wanted to see people she'd seen on the telly, people she recognised, people she'd heard of, people she could say, I've seen that person at Wimbledon. So I looked at the... you know, How snobby were you about that when she well, well, gave you that brief? Yeah. I think I'd already been that week already. So this was this was her day. And the problem is most of the names are on the courts that you can't get on with a grounds pass. <laughs> so it, it requires a bit of a bit of creative thinking. So we went over to court 12, I remember, to watch uh, Garbine Muguruza in doubles, which I thought was, you know, that is the brief. That's a name. Um, what a she brother. lost. <laughs> she lost. Yeah. Then we stayed on we stayed on court twelve to watch Kevin Anderson. That was the name. He became more of a name. How did you? I would say. How did, what was the your, response your to that? Sis, your sister said, "I want to see the big names that I could brag about." You know, when I see my friends next week, and you took you took her to court 12 to watch kevin anderson you have to take into account we had grounds passes yeah but in in week one a grounds pass you know there there they could there would have been like a there would have been a gelman feast floating around matt well you haven't heard my third name yet he was, okay he was, he was a queen's finest a couple of weeks earlier this mm-hmm. is this is it good point david yes exactly. on telly and everything yeah um Who's the third name then? Come on, the third wow name me. name was we were walking and I heard Nadal grunting and he was practising on an outside court. So um, I got my sister to, you know, it was, it was packed, but I got my sister to go and we sort of shuffled to the front and my sister got to see Nadal practising. So that was pretty good. This is like when Crocodile Dundee <laughs> didn't t- tell which way the wind's blowing by <laughs> just licking it and sticking it up in the air. Matt yes, can, it, Matt can tell where a, <laughs> where a Grand Slam champion is. Just and you, can by... tell the, you could tell the time when he looked at the sun. <laughs> as long as as long as he looked at his wristwatch straight afterwards. <laughs> um, and my fourth name That's not ooh. a knife is Leighton Hewitt. And this plays into what what I was doing when Heather Watson was, was on court is when you've queued in the morning, you're there, I don't know, five o'clock in the morning. By five o'clock in the afternoon you're pretty tired. And we just wanted to sit on a outside court and we watched Leighton Hewitt in doubles. I think he was playing with Casey Delacqua. But we positioned ourselves on one of the outside courts between centre court and number one so we could keep an eye on the scoreboards and hear the cheers and roars and if anything was happening. And then it became obvious during the Leighton Hewitt doubles that that was not the place to be at Wimbledon on that afternoon and actually uh, the hill was the place to be because Heather Watson was mounting a comeback against Serena Williams. So I then... 
took my sister over to the hill for her first hill experience, which was packed. And we were kind of, it kind of spills over onto the little stream at the back, the stairs up the side. And, and we watched the last two sets of Heather Watson, Serena sort of straining our necks, getting a look at the, at the big screen on Heather's hill. I think people were christening it on that afternoon. You gave your sister the full Wimbledon experience. Mm. You watched a plucky Brit lose on the hill and you saw Kevin Anderson. And Leighton Hewitt in doubles. And Leighton Hewitt. I bet you I bet you said to your sister when you sat down to watch Leighton Hewitt, this would probably be your last chance to watch Leighton Hewitt. <laughs> yeah. <'cause>, uh, he's <laughs> getting on a bit. He's had to take a wild card into the doubles. You know, catch him while you can. <laughs> yes. Three years later. <laughs> False advertising. Um... So you you uh, you watched it on the hill, and David, you watched it from the Five Live commentary box. Yeah, yeah, it was an ama- amazing atmosphere, and I, I commentated for that with Justine Annan, who was just superb, really good co-commentator, um, and Tracy Austin. So it was a, it was a good lineup that we had there, and I just recall because Serena thumps through the first set six two and. It really does look – it just looks one-sided because Heather Watson was playing pretty well in that first set as well and just gets taken apart because Williams is just so good. And I just remember the kind of feeling of – when she turns it around in the second set, feeling of of shock next to me from Justine and Tracy. And they, they could not believe their eyes what Watson was doing, how – how out of her skin she seemed to be playing. It was one of those days where, I mean, I've always thought Heather Watson's a good, a really good, capable player, but she played at a level that day that I've never seen her play before or since. But I think that's a really important point about the first set because, I mean, the nature of an upset is that you don't see it coming, obviously. But normally there's an indication at reasonably early in a match that this is going to be a different sort of day. Magnus is, is not impressed with my analysis. Um, <laughs> but that was the thing, like 25-minute first set to Serena. There is no indication at all that this is going to be a stressful day for her or that Watson's going to have a moment. It's just progressing exactly like you think it's going to. And I think that's what makes the turnaround all the more dramatic is that it happened mid-match. There was There was no sign of it at the start Serena's just totally in control in the first set Lindsay Davenport in the commentary box is talking about how she looks invincible and then suddenly out of the blue the match turns around dramatically in terms of Serena's form coming into this Wimbledon there's kind of a couple of different things at play there's her her year up to that point well actually kind of her calendar year because she's won three grand slams on the bounce she won the 2014 us open and she was two slams in at this stage to the calendar year grand slam she'd uh, beaten maria sharapova in the australian open final and she'd beaten lucy safarova in the french open final so in those terms she's in imperious form um, she made her return to Indian Wells that year um, in between those two Grand Slams. Um, but in terms of Wimbledon, she's having a mini kind of Rafael Nadal-esque wobble because she's a five-time champion at, at this stage. But the previous two years, she suffered, by her standards, very 
early defeat. She lost to Elise Cornet uh, the previous year, 2014, in round two. Um, and uh, she'd lost to Sabine Lezicki, um the year before that in the fourth round in uh, in the year when she was, in my view, <laughs> nailed on to be the champion. You know, that was an absolutely seismic upset at the time. So there was just this little question mark surrounding Serena of her having been vulnerable in the early rounds at Wimbledon before she'd kind of found her feet on the grass, before she'd played her way into form. Um, and yet also she was having this ridiculous year and seemed almost unbeatable. And yet the French Open was a real struggle. I think five of her seven matches went to a deciding set. She was she was visibly quite quite under the weather on the court. Mm. She was blowing her nose a lot and sneezing, coughing. She was she really struggled through that French Open and yet she still managed to win it. But I don't think she played an event between Roland Garros and Wimbledon. So the first opportunity we had to see her after Roland Garros was the first couple of rounds at Wimbledon. But it was noticeable that she was in much better health and, as you said, looking looking good, but also people were, were wary that the first few rounds had been, had been difficult for her the previous two years. And Heather Watson, by contrast, she's 23 years old at this stage. She's world number 59, but she's, she's the British number one. Um, and she's the last surviving British woman in in the main draw. She's she's beaten two very good players in the opening rounds, Caroline Garcia and Daniela Hantikova. She got her first ever victory over a top ten player earlier that year um, over Agnieszka Radvanska at, at Indian Wells. Um, and she's aiming in this match to reach the fourth round of a slam for for the first time in her career. So. She was on on the rise. I mean, nobody was expecting her to perform the way she did against Serena Williams, but she was very much, the signs were that she was on course to kind of reach a, a career apex, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, and as the match went on, you started to see why. You started to see, I felt, a potential that I just never really tapped into before because she was absorbing the power of Williams, standing up to her, incredible retrieval powers on the baseline and turning defence into attack a lot, particularly with her backhand, which is a lethal shot when she gets it going. She looked on that court, the match for anybody. And I mean, obviously, if you're playing Serena Williams at that point in her career on the centre court of Wimbledon, you, you clearly have got what it takes if you're playing your very best. Now, can you keep producing that best in other parts of your career? That's that's the big question mark. But she went, she clawed her way back in that second set, um, won it, and then what did she go? Three love up in the in the, uh, in the the third set, and she had opportunities to go four love up ahead. And it was the atmosphere. It's, it's one part just electric and just really exciting. And as it's progressing... I find it starts to get pretty uncomfortable because I don't, I didn't I didn't enjoy it watching back although it was exciting really enjoyed the atmosphere on one level from a Serena Williams perspective 
I just thought, crikey, this is awkward. I don't, I don't, I just don't want you cheering her errors quite like that and her double faults. And that was happening. And you know, you know, you might say, well, yeah, but that's just inevitable. That's just what Wimbledon is like, or what any tennis tournament with a home player is like. But I, I didn't like it really. No, that, and I remember feeling like that at the time. I felt like they were obviously pro Watson, the crowd. But I think a large portion of the crowd was pro Watson because they were anti Serena is is how it felt to me. When you start cheering Serena's double faults, when you start kind of goading or baying and (laughs) almost wanting Serena to play badly, that to me crosses the line for what's acceptable and it becomes obnoxious and... You know, it's, it's it's tough because on the one hand, you do want a great atmosphere, but there's a line and I think this match crossed it, I have to say. And it, and it made me feel uncomfortable at the time and probably even more so watching it back. Yeah, there were, there were two occasions, once in the second set and once in the third set when Serena Williams double faulted to concede a break of serve to Heather Watson's and the reaction to Heather Watson and the reaction from the crowd on both occasions is hugely uncomfortable and there are there are other moments like that but you know a double fault is is <laughs> is sort of the one um it's it's a rubicon you don't cross isn't it in tennis fandom and spectatordom cheering unreservedly for a double fault is just just not cool and it's actually a this match this tournament this year was covered by the uh, the documentary serena um and uh, it, it, yeah, as I say, it covers the the whole year in Serena Williams' career, including, of course, the U.S. Open later that year, where she's aiming to to complete that calendar slam and loses that extraordinary match to Roberta Vinci. But uh, she 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 talks about there's there's footage of her that evening after this match, having having dinner, I think, that evening, um, talking to her team. Um, and by this point, she knows that her fourth round opponent is her sister Venus and more of that in a moment. Um, and she says she felt, she said, I was really sad after the match. She said, I was kind of down. Um, she says, look, I, I totally get it. They're, they're cheering, they're cheering for her girl, but the booing was unnecessary. She said, and she said, I'm going to come to, she said towards the end of the match when at that moment she was thinking she was going to lose. She said, I was thinking I'm going to come to Venus's match when she plays this girl and I'm going to be loud. <laughs> um, and she, she also says that, you know, in those latter stages, she was already planning what to do with her week off. You know, she'd, she'd written off that match and she said she, she let the crowd get to her. And um, she said to herself, listen, if I'm going to lose, I'm just going to lose trying to do the right things. Mm. Well, I mean, in in her immediate post-match press conference, she said, I don't think I've ever played with a crowd like that. They were really vocal in between points, during points. You can't blame them because if I were here, I'd probably be supporting Heather too. But she said... I never saw a crowd like this. Um, they were really into it. Heather was Heather was has a tremendous fan base here. Apparently, she says uh, <laughs> I've never seen them so vocal. Um, I've never heard boos here, so that was new for me. 
it was it, new for me too. You I could think. tell, mm-hmm. couldn't you? I mean, I was I was, trying, I was going through my my memory trying to th- trying to think of matches she's played. I can't even think of matches she's played against British players before at Wimbledon and elsewhere. She said she'd played French players in Paris, but you could see that there was there was genuine shock in her in her reaction to what was going on out there. She and and actually. My word, what a performance she ended up pulling out in order to turn it around because I don't think Watson's level dipped really at all. Williams just wrestled it from her. I remember my impression at the time was that Serena wasn't playing very well in this match and hence why she was pushed to 7-5 in the third. But actually watching it back, yes, she has she has a wobble where she is affected, I think, by the reaction of the crowd. I mean, who wouldn't be? That was a, as she said, sad, almost traumatic experience, the way they were behaving towards her. But actually, she handles it with real grace and class and doesn't um, doesn't let them get to her too much. And then in the end, comes up with incredible tennis down the stretch to wrestle the match back in in her grasp there's a series of games where she I think she hits five consecutive winners from 40 love down in one game in the third set and just the matches on her racket which I think must have made it on one level on the one hand all the more frustrating that she wasn't winning it but also I suppose slightly comforting and that she knows she does have a route back into the match um and yeah she she really just takes control in those final stages and it's actually it's actually a real indication of what a what a champion she is that match that she manages to come through it after the match Billie Jean King tracks her down to to come and speak to her, Serena Williams and it's that that chat's very brief but it's captured again and by the documentary makers and the the film Serena and um, first of all Serena says oh I just couldn't she started slicing everything in the second set and I just couldn't couldn't cope with that um, and Billy Billy Jean says to be nervous and uh, at this point Serena hasn't quite had a chance I don't think to to kind of process it all and she takes takes a beat and she goes yeah I was actually and she said yeah I could tell because you weren't moving your feet and Serena goes Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, she says, I'm going to remember that. Nerves and feet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, one champion to another. I, mean, I thought the, the reaction afterwards was very interesting from from those that were covering it, like myself and lots of the other pundits. And I think that in the moment, you you can get – when you're in the stadium, when you're covering it, when you're commentating on it, you can get whipped up with the frenzy of it all. And whilst I, I've watched it back and felt uncomfortable, I don't think I necessarily thought that at the time when I was in the stadium. I was more viewing it from a Heather Watson perspective, A, in terms of what an incredibly good performance, B, what a missed opportunity it is, and C, what does this mean for her future? That was the prism through with which I and my colleagues were all looking at it. And I remember, because I wasn't commentating on the third set, I was sent up to the player lawn to try to get reaction. Um, and I spoke to Diego Veronelli, her coach at the time. And he is he cut one of the most distraught, crestfallen figures I've ever interviewed after a match. Um, the, it was I couldn't really extract any comfort from him in her performance yes he he acknowledged how good it was but the gist of it was 
this is really hard to take because she should have won that match is is what he thought and you know most people that are quoted afterwards i'm looking through the pundits most people like tracy austin and and uh, and several others saying that she played top 20 tennis out there some even top 10 tennis and this is a great platform to build on but actually when you look at her career since then she hasn't built on it she did have some she's had some good results she's won some tournaments but she's never got higher than that she's she was 38 in the world at the end of 2015 she's not been that high again she's not moved on in the way that i think a lot of people thought that performance suggested she could and uh yeah it's it it shows how a moment in time can be just that 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 and that you can get whipped up and carried away and i definitely feel like i'm somebody throughout my tennis fan years and and including covering a match like this i would have been too but it doesn't necessarily count for much in the long run i think she's a she's a nightmare player heather watson to play against if you are nervous and not feeling yourself and because she I mean, I th- it's very easy to say now. I'm aware of that, but some of the comments I've read from pundits after that match, I do, I do think they, a lot of them were getting carried away with with Heather Watson hype because there is a very clear ceiling to her game, isn't there? There is, there is a ceiling. She she doesn't have big weapons, but she keeps you honest and she will make you play. And she's a great scrapper and a great fighter. Her three set record. Um, is fantastic. I think she, 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 um, I mean, sometimes I remember a time with the British press, it was a bit of a running joke that she would always end up in a, in a third set tussle. You know, she'd lose the first set and you think, right, she's got to right where she wants her. Um, But she's, she's not the person you want to play if you're, if your feet are feeling a bit stuck in the mud and you're feeling jittery and nervous because she'll make you play and she'll she'll keep you honest and if she's able to do that consistently which is which is what she did against Serena that day there were no dips really were there I had remembered that that she was three love up in that deciding set I'd remembered that she'd served for the match at 5-4 and I was expecting I'd ex- I was expecting to watch a choke actually today um and she didn't she didn't do anything wrong Heather Watson Serena wrestled it from her like the champion that that she is. I've certainly been guilty of watching a match with a player and getting excited, getting overexcited about it. It's, it's kind of a natural mm. thing to do. Kane Shikori, for example. But I always go back to the Martina Navratilova quote, where a, a true measure of someone's ability is not how well they're playing at their best, but how well they're playing at their worst or their average level. And I mm. think so actually a match like this, you can't really tell that much because it's it's Heather Watson playing at a level that she doesn't normally play at. And, and the level she normally plays at is is the way to tell what her level is and what her ceiling is. So I think these matches, we often think that they might be some kind of platform or the start of something. But more often than not, they're a one off because these players are great tennis players and everyone in the top 100 is probably capable of playing a kind of top 20 level every now and again but it's it's having the consistency to do it which which separates those who actually are in the top 20 and those who aren't i think and andy murray tweeted at the time uh he tweeted 
Retweet if Heather Watson just made you feel effing proud. Favourite if she made you feel really effing proud. Um, was, was he trying to get followers? <laughs> Don't think so. That's that's what people do when no, they're I, I shamelessly he, I trying to... I think he was tweeting throughout that tournament whenever a British player was playing. He was. I remember he was very active on Twitter mm. during that But I think it's a perfect exa- encapsulation of how the country watching that match mm. was getting whipped up into a frenzy and believing and enjoying it. Just enjoying seeing a, a British player play like that against the greatest player of all time. It was exciting. Um, but that's why... I, I agree with you about the baseline level wasn't that, but I think I think that the assumption was that there was a platform there to to build on, and she actually won one match in her next five Grand Slam tournaments. And I believe that there would have been. I think she was capable of more personally um, in terms of her career. Heather Watson. I think she's had a good career. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to criticise her. She's had a good career. She's made a good living. She's done some good things. I think she could have done. Even, I think she could have done better. Mm. Yeah. Just a final point on on Serena um, is I I do just wonder um, whether the fact that she knew that Venus was waiting. In the fourth round, I do just wonder if that was something that was on her mind. It's it's something I perhaps wouldn't have thought of if I hadn't watched that documentary this morning in preparation for this. But she she makes a point, a very very big point. One of her signature moves, Serena, is to not ever look at the draw, um, and and not even when she's she's won the previous round, she doesn't even then want to know until match day. Patrick Moratoglu says, until who she's facing. But then she makes the point that as the tournament progresses, you can't help but look around and see who's in the locker room with you. Because, of course, you play alternate halves of sides of the draw and alternate, alternate days. So you know the people in the locker room with you are in your half of the draw. You don't know where within that half they are, but you know that you're destined to meet them before the final and unfortunately she she knows she knew that venus was playing on the same days as her and she'd she'd figured out by that point that venus was her next round opponent and venus was venus was playing really great tennis at that time and she'd beaten serena the previous match that they'd played um a few months before um, and there's a line from Serena in that documentary where she's she's looking ahead to that fourth round match with Venus, and she says, "Venus loves the grass, unlike me." You know, I th- I think <laughs> I think she was she was both anxious about you know the 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 discomfort of playing and trying to beat her sister, and also anxious about v- Venus Williams as an opponent and as an obstacle to her winning that Wimbledon and completing the calendar year slam she she saw venus then as her toughest opponent so i do just wonder if if that was in her mind as well and was contributing to to those nerves which billy jean king observed and and serena confessed to um and of course you know those nerves were only going to ratchet up with every match that she played every grand slam match that she played from then on in that extraordinary season of 2015. 
And actually, the second question of the press conference after the Heather Watson match is something to do with the Grand Slam that she's trying to com- complete. And she she snaps at it. She just says, this is the last question I'm going to be asked about the Grand Slam in, in this press conference because, you know, I, I, I don't want to think about it. It's it, it, I don't think about it and I don't want to think about it. Fair enough. <laughs> um well, we all know what happened. She she went on to win that Wimbledon. She, of course, beat Venus in the fourth round, went on to reach the final, beat Garbinia Muguruza pretty handily in that final, and then goes into the US Open. Having already won the, the Serena Slam, it has to be said, she's holding all four Grand Slams at that point. But, but what she's aiming to do at that 2015 US Open is complete the calendar year slam, something that's not been done since... Steffi Graf in 1988, and uh, she comes within two matches of doing so, losing out to uh, to Roberta Vinci in uh, a match that I'm sure David will find a way for us to relive in uh, in a in a couple of months' time, regardless of whether the U.S. Open is actually happening or not. Well. You never, you never know, Catherine. <laughs> oh, we do. Um, in terms of Heather Watson, by the way, we're just going to um, we're going to wrap up our fortnight by bringing you a couple of uh, bring you up to date with a couple of bits of news from the, the the tennis tour. One of which is that the the Progress Tour Women's Championships, which is scheduled to start on Tuesday, coverage of that is on the BBC Sport website. Uh, starting at 11am Heather Watson as I say is playing there Harriet Dart Katie Bolter Katie Swan has come into the field as well Um, unfortunately Emma Raducanu had to withdraw I was quite excited about watching her she's a a very talented young um, Brit but uh, they've got a good field and coverage there is on the the BBC Sport website and app and on BBC iPlayer as well if you want to follow Heather or anybody else's progress in that it's very similar format to the battle of the brits but four groups of four rather than two groups of four and uh knockout at the later stages so that starts on tuesday uh at the national tennis center and it's on through until sunday um so that's what heather watson's doing this week i wonder what she's been appearing uh, on some of the bbc evening shows around wimbledon she seems pretty kind of engaged with what's going on in tennis i mean we've been talking about her career in this episode like it's over yeah or like and, 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 or like she's past her peak but and, she's what 28 28, 28? And, 28? And she's had a good run recently she's 50 mm. in the world right now so for all we know she may still have her best ahead of her i hope so because i believe the foundations of her game from at least from what i can see are strong and i don't think her size and her lack of power relatively speaking should necessarily be the ultimate deterrent look at look at simona halep um who has made the absolute most of her game and and i i don't know enough about the technicalities to know what the absolute limits of heather watson's game are but i think that they are higher than what she has produced so far so we'll see good luck to her Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello Tennis Podcast listeners, David here. Now you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. We've also had news this week from Wimbledon. Pretty incredible news, it has to be said you know of all of the ways that tennis has sort of disgraced itself during this weird period it kind of feels like in one wave of the magic wand Wimbledon has been able to neutralize and nullify all of that because they have done the most classy thing they have put a a 10 million pound prize pot aside to to distribute to the 600 plus players that would have been competing at Wimbledon in the main draw and in the qualifying draw as well. I think £25,000 to players that would have on, on, on current rankings been playing in the in the main draw and twelve and a half thousand to those that would have been in the qualifying draw. And the reception to that completely unprompted move um, on social media has been incredible. People have been pretty, pretty bowled over by the gesture actually. And, you know, many have been making the point that that could, that could save careers for a lot of people in the lower tiers of the sport. That is the, the difference between being able to continue as a professional tennis player and not. Yeah. Uh, and they've also covered doubles players with a, a lower figure, but still, a, you know, a, a sizable amount of money for people who literally are not earning a penny right now, unless they sort out giving tennis lessons or something like that. That they are freelance contractors who are not playing tournaments, so they're not earning money unless they can get into one of the uh, the locally organised exhibitions, I imagine. And the same with the wheelchair players as well. I mean, this is a this is a a great 
fund of money that has been put aside by Wimbledon, who are obviously covered by their pandemic insurance, which was just the most incredible foresight at the time. But I do love the way they have taken advantage of that great foresight and the money that that is going to save them and decided, okay, let's spread the love around. Let's let's look after people that we rely on in order to be a tournament. And uh, just just really, really Im- impressive. And they're also um, giving some money to officials who would have been mm. working at the event. LTA sanctioned officials and international officials who would have been working at the tournament. Yeah, so just all round really, really incredible gesture from Wimbledon. Yeah, both a generous gesture for sure, and but also a really sensible macro way of viewing tennis, a, a recognition of the fact that for Wimbledon to happen and be successful, you need tennis players, not just the top ones, the multi-millionaires. You need uh, 128 players in the draw and you need a, a qualifying tournament and you need wheelchair players and doubles players and this is these are the things that that make grand slam tournaments the the beautiful thing that they are so um yeah having 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 that view of the sport um and not just a sort of myopic narrow one is um it's great to see actually um also announced by Wimbledon this week is that they are doing away with the seeding formula um on the men's side um so no more elevating Pete Sampras from what was it seven in the world to top seed something like that um so i mean it, it these days the the impact of that is pretty minimal in in practical terms but it's more sort of the the principle of it i suppose and the the fact that the wimbledon are no no longer be an outlier um in those terms and i think the way the formula works if they'd had it next year the most recent grass court results that would have been impacting the formula would have been from two years ago which kind of doesn't feel that relevant um so i think it, it kind of makes sense that it's that it's going now kind of just seemed seemed slightly unnecessary especially with the grass not playing as differently as it used to back back when they first came up with the formula so yeah i think most people seem to think that it makes sense We've also had uh, an announcement from both the ATP and the WTA about adjustments to their rankings systems to to accommodate, you know, what's what's been happening over the over the hiatus. I'm going to call it the Christian Garin <laughs> amendment. Uh, Matt, would you care to explain it? <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's actually quite a quite a clever system that they've come up with normally the rankings operate on a on a 12 month system it's now been extended to a 22 month system so that players will keep their best results from the 2019 tournament or if they better it they will take their 2020 result so basically what it means is that players who are unable or unwilling to travel will not be penalised because the points they earned last year will stay on the ranking. They won't drop off like they normally would. So it's harder to climb in the rankings, but it, it, it means that players will stay where they are or possibly be overtaken if people better their 2019 results. And on the men's side, they've changed what they're doing for the 
ATP finals, like you said. So it's bad for someone like Christian Garin, who was sixth in the race. They've kind of got rid of the race. They're not going to be advertising the race so much um, because the points from last year will still be counting. Um, Whereas the WTA, I think, are kind of having a race and they're going to take the best 16 results from a player's uh 2020 season to count towards the race to Shenzhen but obviously with the announcement from from China that international sporting events will probably not be taking place there that is into question I know Steve Simon has said that they're still not sure whether that applies to tennis and Shenzhen but there's certainly in doubt whether that event can take place this year I mean it certainly seems like sensible they seem like sensible adjustments to, to to me to the rankings and um it all yeah it all it all seems to make sense it does want i suppose an unintended consequence of it is that it rem- slightly removes a bit of the incentive to play the US Open and given the shifting landscape with things in New York and in the US um, in, incentives to play the US Open do seem to be somewhat ebbing ebbing away potentially. Um, you know, all that could change again. That's with the situation as it is at the moment. There's a feeling that, that there is a growing reluctance from from the players maybe to to travel there. Uh, I mean, some as as it stands at the moment with the current regulations in the US, some players would be unable to travel there because you're unable to travel between certain states. Um, but obviously it's a, it's a very shifting landscape. Um, we understand from a, an article in the Spanish newspaper Marca today, which Matt has helpfully translated for us, that there is going to be an ATP players conference call tomorrow, Monday, um, when efforts will be made to, to, persuade the players to make the case for why they should play the US Open. Yeah, this ranking decision has made players who were sceptical about it in the first place think that there isn't that much point in going to the US Open and they should instead focus on the clay court swing and restart their season um, in Madrid. But the the purpose of the meeting, it's understood, is, as you said, to in, to encourage players to think otherwise. Um, there's also going to be a meeting on Wednesday, apparently, with the coaches about the logistics of the US Open and what would happen in terms of a possible insurance if, if players, coaches, their teams were to contract the virus and have to self-isolate there for two weeks. So there's there's a week of meetings and maybe we'll know more by the end of it. Also confirmed is that the Washington event scheduled to start on August 14th, that was the restart date for the for the men's tour in Washington, that will be a men's only event. Um, and in, instead that week on the WTA tour, there'll be a new event in Kentucky, uh, Louisiana. And uh, the WTA tour will be resuming on August the 3rd in Palermo, uh, in Italy, in an event um, which has got a pretty decent player field lined up, with the announcement this week from Simona Halep that that she'll be playing. Yeah, it's um, she's been very reluctant 
very publicly reluctant to play the US Open on the grounds of, of safety and uh, hasn't completely ruled it out but said she didn't think she would as things stand. Um, but this is a, a further indication that she wants to get on the clay and play in Europe where she feels more comfortable. I guess we'll wait and see with regard to the US Open. But we've heard Rafael Nadal um, is going to play Madrid, that Djokovic is, is planning to play all three clay court events, Madrid, Rome and the French Open. It will be fascinating because, as you say, with the rising number of cases in the United States, it does feel like the ground has shifted in the last three weeks since the US Open said categorically, we are holding the event. Um, so we'll see what they decide to do now um, because they clearly still want to do it. But uh, things are changing. And the, there is, as you say, a two week quarantine period at the moment in New York for many of the states of the United States in order to, to get access to the actual state itself so we shall see there's a machiavellian part of david that doesn't want the us open to happen so that we can do another two weeks of tennis relived he's already he's already got a list folks yeah. of matches and i've on already the go. worked out ways of slotting in the odd <laughs> tennis relived even if we don't have the us open. he's already he's already done a load of interviews for it <laughs> on the sly awesome um yeah. So anyway, one way or another, this is not the end of Tennis Relived. We've got T-shirts now, so it has to carry on. We've we've built a brand, as <laughs> Mary would cringe at us saying. Um, and we've loved doing it, haven't we? It's been an absolute joy over the past five, six weeks, seven weeks, um, starting from the French Open. I know we were, we were living other matches before that but it feels like the heavy lifting began at the uh, the start of what would have been the French Open and um, it's saved me from a pit of despair I don't know about you two but yeah. uh, it's, it's been an absolute joy and to every single person that has written to us to to tell us how much you're enjoying it to tell us what it's meant to you um, we are that they mean a lot those messages and we're uh, we're extremely grateful and privileged to be able to to provide any kind of relief or happiness or comfort and um that's what the podcast's done for us over the past few months so we're happy to pay it forward Hmm. I can't say that when we initially came up the idea with the idea that I thought it would be quite this hard, quite this much work. <laughs> no, um, but you know, initially I thought, oh, we'll just do what we've done today, which is just a, watch a match and have a chat. But then I don't know, interview ideas seem to come up from somewhere, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, before you know it, it's one a.m. You're drinking red wine, you're sobbing into it, and you're watching even as if it's after the final game for the seventh time that week. Yeah. Yeah. Questioning all your life choices. Uh, but we do get to get some sleep now. Yeah. Um, we we will be back. Obviously, we'll be doing weekly pos podcasts, possibly more than weekly. When there's when there's news to, to bring you, we'll be bringing it to you. But we've got a, a schedule of podcasts as well. We've got the Yannick Noah interview in full, which will be coming to you next week. And hold on to your hats. It really is one of the best tennis interviews you'll ever have heard. I promise you that. We've got the Lindsay Davenport interview in full. We'll also be doing question and answer podcasts. We've got our guest editors, Drew and David, who'll be curating the questions for that. And as I say, as and when there's, there's news in the tennis world, we'll be here to bring it to you. 
and to discuss it, possibly even with a cameo from postcoital cigarette Simon. Um, <laughs> I thought you were going to say Magnus. <laughs> um, so I hope you have enjoyed Wimbledon Relived. I hope you've enjoyed or certainly not been too irritated by the brief cameo from Magnus. Can I tell you somebody um, that has enjoyed it? Who? Gerald. <laughs> <laughs> Gerald has spent a fortnight basking in his own glow. <laughs> I think he's a bit anti-Magnus right now. <laughs> Sorry, Gerald. Um, Gerald, if you don't follow him on Instagram, I highly recommend it. He's done a... Actually, I'm not going to spoiler it. Just go and check out his Instagram and see the uh, the post that's up there from today. It's uh, a thing of absolute perfection. So thank you, Gerald. Thank you, Daryl, Gerald's owner, for uh, for being our lovely, lovely mascot for this fortnight. Thank you, David. Thank you, Matt. Thank you to all of the guests that we've had who have absolutely made these stories for us. And um, and that's it. We'll see you soon. Just give me one second. I think Magnus has disgraced himself. Where, are there poos everywhere? Yes, please do. Oh, what, did you see it happen? No. Could you smell it? No. I can't smell it. I just saw it when I sat down. Is it? It's not. Is it sloppy? No. Okay. It's just a little perfumed poo. Three. <laughs> oh, magnet. I think there was a poo sitting there for the whole podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 